0: All right, good afternoon. Welcome to the Atlantic Council's Global Energy Center. My name is Annie Medalia. I'm the Deputy Director here. And today's event is on unveiling the Iranian petroleum contract, investment impacts, sanctions concerns, and production outlook. So at the start, I just want to note as a disclaimer that everything today is for educational purposes and there is no professional um, and or industry advice being given. Um, and I would love to take the time to introduce our fabulous panel. Um, So bear with me as I go through these uh, excellent bios. So the first, um, Yagana Torbati is our our moderator here today. She's a reporter for Reuters, where she covers national security, sanctions issues, and foreign policy. From 2011 to 2013, she covered Iran's nuclear program, the effects of international sanctions, and Iranian foreign policy, and still covers that um, today. On her her left is um, Sarah Vakshori, and she's a non-resident senior fellow here at the Global Energy Center and is the founder and president of SVB Energy International, a strategic energy consulting firm. She previously worked at the National Iranian Oil Company and amongst other uh, organizations within Iran and is a leading expert and commentator on energy issues in the subject. Um, To her left is is Gulia Sabahi, and she is a partner in the energy team at Denton's, the world's largest law firm, and in her role, she focuses on the representation of international oil companies and national oil companies in connection with energy sector transactions in the Middle East, Africa, Central Asia, and South America, and she's a renowned expert on the legal and energy sector. Um, and finally, we have Suzanne Maloney, who Dr. Maloney is the Deputy Director of the Foreign Policy Program at the Brookings Institution and a Senior Fellow with the Center for the Middle East Policy as well as the Energy Security and Climate Initiative. Her research focuses on Iran and Persian Gulf energy issues. And her most recent book is Iran's Political Economy Since the Revolution, which was published in August of 2015. So with that, um, I'd like to welcome our our panelists, and if you want to follow the conversation on Twitter, um, use the hashtag AC energy. Thank you very much.
1: All right, thank you so much, Annie, and thank you all for coming. Um, So uh, as Annie mentioned, we're here today to discuss the Iran Petroleum Contract, um, which is the new and updated um, oil exploration agreement that Iran is offering to international um, oil companies to entice them to come help develop its uh, oil sector. Um, So it's been about three and a half weeks now since um, implementation day of the nuclear agreement um, between Iran and world powers, which brought with it the lifting of um, major sanctions on Iran, um, which will then make it possible for the first time in years for um, international oil companies to actually invest in Iran. Um, But of course, even before the implementation of sanctions, um, and especially EU sanctions in 2012, um, many oil companies had already started to um, exit Iran. And one of the obstacles to um, business investment in Iran was the the particular form um, that its oil contracts uh, took. And so um, in an effort to address uh, some of those issues and those concerns, Iran has um, proposed this new oil contract, and so that's what we're kind of going to delve into today. Um, and we have a really expert panel and I won't repeat their bios and uh, you, I think you have um, some version of them in, for, in front of you as well. But they're going to sort of help us lay out um, exactly what the uh, new oil contract says, uh, what what the old version said in the past and, and um, the, the terms that it um, placed uh, oil companies under. And then also both the, um, the regional context, how it compares to What businesses and and companies encounter in countries surrounding Iran and similar to Iran, um, but then also the energy market context, and then finally we're going to look at, you know, particularly this contract's role in some political disputes um, in Iran. Suzanne's going to help us with that. So, um, without any further uh, ado, Sarah, can you sort of lay out for us, um, you know, what, what are the what are the biggest features of this new contract? How does it compare to kind of what came before? And what's notable to you about it?
2: Thanks for the question, and thanks for having me here. So since 1979 revolution uh, in Iran, uh, the hydrocarbon uh, laws in Iran changed significantly. And one of the major changes happened was the ownership of the resources that belongs to the public in in Iran. And also, the presence of uh, foreign companies really reduced significantly since the revolution. Uh, Until early 2000, uh, that Iran uh, start introducing uh, buyback contracts, which was type of a service contract uh, for international investors to uh, invest uh, in increasing the recovery factor of the mature oil field in Iran. So it was only for investment in brownfield. Later on, the buyback contract developed into the second and the third generation, what they call it. In the second generation, buyback included the uh, exploration and also development of a green field. And in the third uh, generation of the buyback contracts, the uh, the incentives was uh, more than before. The flexibility of, flexibility of the costs uh, uh, of investors was uh, much uh, much more flexible and easy so uh, as you mentioned we had the sanctions and then we had uh, before the sanction we had the Iraqi market open we had the companies not being happy with the buyback uh, contract in Iran and most of the companies left so last year uh, in 2014 in February of 2014 Iranian uh, uh, ministry, uh, announced that Iran has changed uh, its uh, inter- uh, upstream investment regulation and they introduced a new type of a contract called Iran Petroleum Contracts or IPC. So IPC has a major differences with buyback. Uh, if I would like to start, the major difference is that uh, buyback was only for exploration and development projects, but IPC includes production process, and this is for the first time since the revolution, 1979 revolution, that the uh, Iranian government allows the uh, in uh, IOCs and investors to involve in a production process. One of the uh, major uh, factors for that is that I remember. Uh, when I was working there, when the field would start producing, NIOC, would, which this happened traditionally since 1979, the marketing and sale of crude oil was only in hand of the NIOC. So NIOC had to start marketing and sell the production of the field, if it's condensate or crude oil, and then start uh, paying back the international companies. But then. If, especially with the gas fields, that they had to pay back the companies from sell of, uh, selling the condensate of those gas fields. It was a big trouble because Iran could not easily market those condensate or crude oil and pay back the companies on time. So the new IPC will help an uh, IOC to use the help of IOC, especially at the time of low oil production, low oil uh, prices, and oversupply in the market, to get a help for marketing and sell of this crude oil. The other thing is the duration of the contract. So in the buyback the company's duration of investment was 5 to 7 years. But now because it includes the production and later on if they agree on a cost reco- uh, production recovery process it prolongs from 7 years 5 to 7 years to 20 to 25 years. And this creates longer time engagement of investors in Iran. It's going to help the fields to uh, maintain in a better shape than before, but also can create higher political leverages for Iran to increase the stakes of international companies for longer term. The other important component of IPC is that in buyback, the the different uh, process of exploration and development projects were disintegrated. So one company would come and participate in exploration uh, project. If there was any commercial uh, field found, they had to enter a new tender round. And then either the same company or another company would uh, 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 win the development Profit development project. But in IPC, they're all integrated. So a company can come invest in exploration and then they can take in charge, they can be uh, involved in development and then in the production. So they don't need to keep going for the round and uh, bidding rounds and compete with other companies. The third important thing is that in buybacks, if a company would find no commercial assets or reserves in exploration, they had to, they simply lost their, they would lose their investment. But in IPC, they will put the, firm into a priority to go for another uh, exploration uh, process. The, the ceiling of the profit, the ceiling of the cost are all more fre- flexible. Another factor that I'm sure Gulli will go into further details of that is uh, what they call a risk factor. So uh, this is something new. There, there is going to be a fee per barrel as a, a cost uh, and a reward that a company is going to get. So that fee per barrel of production is a combination of a, a fee that is negotiable. Let's imagine $1, $2. It depends on the negotiation. And then there is a risk factor that is going to multiple to that fee barrels. Fee per barrel. This is a very interesting component because the higher the risk of uh, investment goes, the fee per barrel increases. So there are different uh, risks, uh, risk factor that uh, uh, define in the IPC, and that goes higher when uh, we go from let's say medium risks uh, offshore to high risks onshore, uh, and also the highest risks is. Uh, included for the uh, share field between the uh, Iran and neighboring countries because those are in highest priority for Iran to develop. So the highest uh, risk factor would be for the share field and also deep water. So the companies will get more according to the increase of the risk. And then there is another factor, again, I'm sure Goli will go further into that, is that this is something very new, very recent that they included in the IPC, and that's because the prices of oil are very low now. So what they uh, include is that depending on the increase of prices of oil, there's going to be a percentage added to that fee per barrel. So if the prices go higher, the companies are going to make money. We had some questions that, is this a difference between today's price with future price? No, it's not going to be that big of a difference, but there's going to be, of course, a a factor, a a percentage that is going to be defined and negotiated. So these are major, uh, uh, very important uh, components of uh, IPC. There is not any... Uh, the direct clause that mentions that companies can book reserve, but again, um, you will describe more about that. Uh, there's uh, the companies uh, there. And when, it, uh, when the operation starts, the operation project starts, there's going to be an operation company uh, created. So the international company, uh, oil company, should have a, create a joint venture between an Iranian partner or NIOC and the, uh, during all the exploration, development, and production. But when it comes to the production, it's called an operation company. And this operational company is going to manage the production of the field until the end of duration of the IPC. And there is a clause in IPC that says that the cost recovery is no more than 50% share of the production of the field, and then there is some possibilities that uh, Gulie will discuss more about it that uh, could um, uh, create more incentives for uh, companies when it comes to um, booking reserve.
1: So how do the, these terms compare to um, what companies have available to them in Iraq or in other countries? when they want to um, um, form partnerships or go, go into those countries to explore for oil? Uh, How do the IPC's terms compare with what's on offer in Iraq or elsewhere? Oh, war? okay. Uh,
2: something that, uh, because I know that Guly prepared to talk about this, but something that I know about IPC is that uh, since like three, four years, two, three years ago that this committee at NIOC started uh, drafting the IPC, they have been... In direct communication with international oil companies, so they keep sending their ideas, the draft, and receiving back ideas. So many of uh, uh, interests and many of uh, consideration of international oil companies have been already considered as much as the Iran's constitution would allow them.
1: So, so Goli, maybe you can kind of expand on that a little bit. Yeah, I I will.
3: um, And maybe before I um, do that, I just wanted to say, um, kind of my. personal view of the IPC, um, there's a conceptual framework for the model IPC that's been made available for experts for comment. And the question arises, is this really a new type of upstream contract? And for those of you who are not familiar with upstream contracts, they refer to exploration and production contracts between um, host governments and IOCs. And IOCs refer to international oil companies, so we keep referring to IOCs. and I um, think that it is a very unique contract. Um, of course, the contract itself has not been issued yet. So being a lawyer, I know the devil is in the de- you know, detail.
1: And actually, if I can just kind of interject. Ha- so it hasn't been
3: officially unveiled yet. It hasn't what been, the... yes. It hasn't been um, officially unveiled yet. Um, there was an expectation that it would be issued um, this month uh, and would be discussed in the London conference, but that has been postponed. So uh, it may come out any time, but what has been made available uh, so far um, to certain uh, groups for for comments has been the conceptual kind of annotated summary of the key elements of the IPC. And um, having studied that, um, I would say that it is a unique contract. Um, It's fundamentally different from the buybacks. And it is a service um, risk service based contract, but it includes many elements of the PSC, and I'm going to go into the discussion about those just to give you a better context. So I personally think that if it's negotiated um, you know well, um, you know, it has all of the right fiscal um, incentives, it could be a very attractive. Um, contractual structure for the for the IOCs. So in terms of how it would compare with um, other countries in the region and globally, I think it's important for me just um, to give a very quick overview of different types of upstream contracts that exist so that you could also get the context for the evolution of upstream contracts in Iran. So in the industry, when we talk about upstream contracts, we really talk about three types of um, upstream contracts, the first one being concessions. Um, They're also called licenses or tax and royalty regimes. Then you have production-sharing contracts. And then you have service contracts. So those are three types. And what you see around the world um, would be really variations of those or hybrid structures that would include elements from different types of contracts. Um, It's it's rarely that you see the pure, um, you know, types in their own uh, form and shape. So in terms of concessions, you know, they're currently used in the modern form in the US and Australia. And actually, Iran was the country that granted some of the earliest concessions back in the late 19th century and the 20th centuries. And those simpler, earlier concessions uh, provided for grants of vast territories of land, of contract areas, to IOCs for very long periods of time, maybe 60 years, without really having any um, minimum work program or other work commitments attached. And essentially what IOC was receiving is the exclusive ownership of hydrocarbons without much of control or oversight by the government uh, over the operations. And um, it's very controversial history. Very Iran. controversial history. So Iran has gone through that um, you know, in the wave of nationalizations in the 1950s in Latin America and the Middle East, including in Iran in 1951. The concessions um, most of them, you know those earlier, simpler concessions, they were um, cancelled and abolished, and um, then, after the revolution, really, uh, 1979 in 1980s, we had the n- a new constitution in Iran which expressly prohibited the ownership of hydrocarbons by foreign persons, so only the state would be able to have the title to the reserves on the ground as well as the production above the ground. And um, you know the, the the birth of the PSCs in 1960s and 70s and 80s all around the world really did not touch uh, Iran that much because of those uh, constitutional limitations. And what happened is that um, in 1990s and early 2000s, um, Iran basically um, offered um, uh, these buyback contracts, which are essentially service contracts, because of the constitutional limitations of not being able to grant the title to the reserves and production to oil companies. So they couldn't do concessions. They couldn't do production-sharing contracts in pure sense. So the only structure that was left were service contracts. And that's why the buyback contracts are really a version of risk-based service contracts. And um, those um, risk service contracts essentially they, they, they basically treat an IOC as a contractor. And contractor, they get hired to do a certain um, scope of work for a fixed fee. And service contracts are not favored by IOCs in general because they cannot claim title to the reserves, as we discussed, so that they cannot book those reserves in their financial statements to be able to show additional assets that would help them to incrementally increase the value of their shares. They cannot um, um, also um, really be compensated properly for any um, um, really um, performance targets being met. Or, for example, if the production volumes exceed the target levels, the IOC would still receive the same fixed fee per barrel. So um, that was, of course, not welcomed by by IOCs. And the third point, um, really that's a very important point for IOCs, is the recovery of costs. The projects that we're talking about, you know, they're millions and billions of dollars. So when oil company goes into those projects and they put this risk capital for the exploration work, they want to make sure that um, they can recover fully um, uh, those costs. And under the buyback contracts, that was an issue. Uh, And and it's still an issue, although the third generation of buyback contracts try to deal with that issue through the master development plans, but I think it's still a big issue. So the the reason I'm excited about the IPC, um, I believe IPC is really intended to um, recognize all of those issues and strike that right balance between the objectives and uh, requirements of the host government and the expectations of IOC. And IPC, hopefully once drafted, will um, address those issues. The conceptual framework does address the issues that I have just outlined. And as I mentioned, um, it does have many elements of the production-sharing contract. And for those of you who are not familiar with the (coughs) production-sharing contract structure, Essentially when the um, concessions were canceled and then the the production sharing agreements were born, the key element of the production sharing contract was the sharing of production by the government and by the IOC, so no longer IOC would receive all of the production, right? In addition to that, um, host governments would be uh, exercising a certain degree of control and oversight and imposing minimum work obligations of IOC to make sure that the blocks get um, thoroughly and quickly explored. And um, and there were other elements. Uh, so uh, we see a lot of those elements um, in the IPC. Uh, under the IPC structure, because it's a service contract, the IOC still cannot receive a share of the production, but it does receive it in, in, uh, in the form like of the fees paid in kind. Mm-hmm. So for the work, IOC is going to get fee per barrel, and it's going to be able to receive those fees in kind um, through a share of production. And the way that um, IPC is now dealing with these three issues um, that were raised with respect to the buybacks um, is as follows. The issue of um, reserves booking, so what they're suggesting is um, With the IPC structure, you will not have uh, reserves booking in the pure sense, the way that SEC rules require it, because um, IOC is not entitled to the reserves underground. But there is a long-term crude oil sales agreement that will be appended to the IPC, and that would be signed between an oil company and the host government for the same duration as the IPC itself, which could be, as Sarah mentioned, up to 25 years. And in NIOC's view, in the Iranian government's view, is that that contract should be sufficient for an IOC to disclose to their shareholders and also to report the revenues that are going to come under that contract to an IOC to be able to claim those contractual rights as assets. And hopefully that will help them to incrementally increase the value of their shares. Um, The second issue on the cost recovery um, It's very interesting when you look at uh, what has been proposed. The IPC is going to include almost mimic the cost recovery provisions uh, that you find in the production sharing contract. It um, has the a cost recovery ceiling, which is very important and it's very common, um, where, for example, only a certain amount of annual production is available for cost recovery. In the, in the case of IPC, it's 50%, and it's within the range. You know, we have seen from 40% to 70%, um, depending on the country and the project. So 50% of that um, annual production would be available for cost recovery, and um, any unrecovered costs will be carried forward um, until fully recovered. And that's a major um, improvement because under the buyback contracts currently, the recovery period is limited to five to seven years, and so there doesn't seem to be a limitation in time for the recovery of, of costs under the IPC, which is an important aspect. Um, and no longer um, there is this concept of fixed cost, you know, um, where IOC only has a chance to fix costs in the beginning of the project, and then they're just you know married to those costs and. and with the oil and gas projects, the costs could—you know—they always cost um, overruns and changes depending on the—you know—the changes in the—you know—the reservoir and so many other changes. So it's important for uh, IOC to have that flexibility to increase the cost, but do it, of course, in a way that is agreeable to the other side. You know, so.
1: If I can uh, interject with a question, um, you know, the, the IPC in a general form was sort of unveiled or, or shared with, with analysts and experts in 2014. Um, when we were facing a really different um, price environment for oil. Um, uh, Goli and, and maybe Sarah, if you want to jump in here, um, you know, do you think its terms are generous enough to, to attract uh, oil companies in this environment, um, given all the other sort of you know, either political risks or yeah. what, um, the other risks that exist um, with Iran? Yeah.
2: There are a few things. First of all, the low oil prices could be a lucky charm for Iran, because the production cost is very low in Iran, so now if you're uh, investor and you want to choose a area to invest, Iran as a place that the production cost is very low could be an interesting place. But also the prospect of the market is that the prices are going to be higher in the future. So by the time that the field starts producing and the, um, the uh, according to the IPC, the first uh, cost recovery will start after five to seven years when the project starts. So. Um, almost five to seven years will be the first uh, production of the field. So by then, we are expecting that the prices are higher. But also, as I mentioned, there is going to be a As Goli mentioned, these are all conceptual drafts. But uh, they are going to include uh, um, a part in the IPC uh, that this fee per barrel is going to be linked to the prices of oil. So if the prices of oil increases, the companies are going to make more money. And if you are, as a company, looking into the prospect of the market that the prices are going to be higher, investing in a place that uh, the production cost is very low, at this moment, and making sure that you're going to make more money if the prices are going to be high. This could be of an advantage. Mm -hmm. But also, again, at the time that there is not enough um, uh, cash uh, or the prices are very low, if you want to enter into an investment for 20 years or 25 years, you're going to include more risks than if you're just going to include, uh, if you're going somewhere for five to seven years. So um, on the price side, and uh, the Iranian incentives for that, this could be a story. But political risks for next 20 years in Iran, that's that's another risk to be considered or assessed. Uh, that's different. Which
1: is what Suzanne will help us understand soon. But Goli, is there anything else you yeah, want to Yeah, p- just
3: purely from the contract perspective and putting the general investment um, environment and political risks. Um, that you have um, in so many countries and uh, projects of this nature. Um, just looking at the contract terms and what they're proposing, um, I um, personally, you know, my personal view is that um, Iranian government and Nayuk, they clearly understand the expectations of IOC's. They have been in this business for over hundred years. They um, understand the risks associated um, with this business and what fiscal incentives they need to create for the IOCs to come. And, um, and one of the important things um, that actually IPC, um, hopefully, um, at least the framework that we have seen, actually improves on some of the PSCs that we have seen because it includes that um, concept of progressive nature of fiscal terms meaning that uh, in case of the higher oil prices, as Sarah mentioned, um, IOC would benefit from it for getting higher fees. And there is also incentive, um, uh, basically IOCs get higher fees if they get involved in higher risk projects. If there is uh, higher volumes of uh, production, then IOCs again get higher fees, you know. And and the other um, issue that I wanted to mention, I mean, there are other elements of the IPC which we're not really touching upon. Uh, but they're important uh, and they, the government needs to get them right um, f- to be able to um, you know, attract and entertain the investors. And one of them is, and, and it's a very common um, expectation from the government side is to establish joint ventures between um, local partners and, um, and IOCs. So for IOCs, um, you know, finding the right local partner is always an issue. And who is it going to be? What would be the capabilities of that local partner? The associated transparency issues, the cost associated with it. Do we have to not carry you know that partner as well? Maybe in addition to NYOC? you know. Um, so will be additional carried interest, which is a real liability for the, um, for the IOC. Uh, the other issue is the local content provisions are um, uh, strict. They provide, if I'm not mistaken, for 51% of the local content, which um, I think um, in, in, in um, context of Iran, could be reasonable but just because of the scale of the industry and actually Iranian manpower and human resources are quite sophisticated, so it could be reasonable. But again, you know, we have seen these local content requirements um, in a number of countries, Nigeria, Ghana, other places around the world, where they have not really worked, and um, and uh, just we need to make sure that they're workable and um, and um, uh, you know uh, reasonable. And, and I think that in general, uh, probably the companies would be interested more in low-cost production rather than significant exploration plays. And uh, Iran is looking to attract investors not only in greenfield projects and, or new exploratory plays, but also in brownfield projects. They have a, a number of mature fields that need EOR, enhanced oil recovery, or IOR, improved um, oil recovery processes and technology. So, um, you know, there might be investors interested in that and um, and, and that could be low cost production. So um, that's not available uh, in many other places around the world.
2: Something I wanted to add is that um, um, we noticed that um, the com- country, uh, countries are more interested about Iran than companies. So many of these con- companies move to Iran is under an umbrella of countries because Iran is trying to engage uh, the business, its oil industry business and investment with countries in a bigger uh, umbrella of different uh, profit. Like for instance, with in the case of France, we, uh, Iran's president went to France. They purchased a huge number of. Um, they gave a big order to Airbus uh, mm-hmm. for purchasing. Uh, aircraft, part of that deal was that Total signed a deal to import, let's say, 200 kbd of crude oil and invest in Iran's oil business. The the same story is with India, for instance. So Iran would give one field. gas field. Uh, we know that Indian are very interested in gas field. So India would invest in an upstream gas field in Iran and uh, extract the gas. Another Indian firm would come and uh, invest in downstream in Iran and or in petrochemical field and would uh, process this gas produced from that field into the petrochemical field. So there is lots of uh, master uh, arrangement uh, which deals between country to country. So most of the companies that are interested in engaging in Iran are those countries that uh, companies that their countries are going into a bigger deal with Iran, uh, Iran and uh, they're going to arrange mo- more incentive around just an investment. For instance, Iran is one of the very unique countries that is doing the most oil sell in the world in a non-dollar currency. Mm. So let's say, OK, uh, France is going to import oil from Iran in euros, or China or Japan in their own local currency. So these are all incentives. Or uh, for in, uh, as, as part of what Gulie said, the companies would receive oil Uh, uh, for, uh, in compare for, uh, uh, receive oil for their investment in Iran. So kind of oil for good turns into oil for investment or oil for services. And Iran does these uh, arrangements with, let's say, China or Japan or India or Europe into a bigger uh, and much more higher level than just a company company.
1: So I'd like to bring in Suzanne at this point. Um, Now, this is not obviously a strictly political panel or panel on Iran's politics, but in Iran, Nothing is really separated from politics. So um, I think just a few days ago, there were some protests over this exact the, the, the topic that we're discussing today, which is the IPC. Um, there were some hardline students protesting in front of the oil ministry, basically saying that it amounts to a violation of the Constitution because it um, uh, grants foreign foreign companies ownership of Iran's oil reserves. So can you talk a little bit about kind of the political rivalries and the dynamics that this this issue in particular has kind
4: of sparked and brought to the fore. Sure, and I just want to thank you all for coming and thank the Atlanta Council for pulling together this phenomenal group of experts, including Yeganeh, who's done groundbreaking work on Iran's economy in her own reporting. Um, so we're really lucky to be here with this crowd. Um, you know, Hassan Rouhani, the Iranian president, has said that everything, the Iranian economy is political. And I think that that's fundamentally clear to anyone who's kind of watched the evolution of Iran over the course of the past 37 years. Um, as Ghouli said, Iranian oil is very much part of the story of Iran's political evolution over the course of the 20th century. And much of the sort of social and political unrest that culminated in the revolution in 1979 was integrally related to the questions of resource nationalism and the original concession and the efforts successively by Reza Shah, by Mohammed Reza Shah, uh, to renegotiate and eventually achieve nationalization of the Iranian oil sector. Um, And so these issues continue to run very deep, uh, even in a a country that we associate with theocracy, that we associate with Islamism, and, and, and broader questions of political philosophy and religion In fact, the issue of control of resources is sort of central to the identity of the Islamic Republic and very much crucial to the political dynamics within the country throughout the course of of this revolutionary period. We are seeing some real contention around the IPC, around the reintroduction of particularly Western foreign investment, not simply foreign investment. because. the the sanctions regime that has been in place over the course of the past five years in particular has disproportionately featured the departure of of European companies as well as some Asian companies as well, and yet China, Russia had relative advantage in terms of continuing to be able to operate in some respects within Iran. And so the, the JCPOA, the nuclear deal has brought about a situation in which most of Europe, South Korea, Japan can return almost unfettered in terms of access to Iranian energy markets. US companies, US persons even working for international companies still face real restrictions in terms of their ability to interact with the Iranian economy. Um, But it it is a new day um, for the Iranians, and uh, one that, that, that comes at a time where I think there has been uh, an evolution which is reasonably um, positive in terms of the receptivity to that kind of foreign investment. Um, it's a twofold evolution. Um, you have an ideological evolution in the way that, that uh, the, the different political groupings think about foreign investment, about the economy itself. The revolution uh, in 79 had a really strong component of kind of socialist, Marxist, uh, left-wing politics, which remained very powerful well into the 1990s. And it was most prominent, it's it's most prominent articulate, uh, those who were most prominently articulating these sorts of views of kind of state domination of the economy and uh, disinterest in foreign investment were those from what was then called the Islamic left. They're the same people who sort of morphed over the course of the 1990s into what we now would call the reform movement. As part of that transformation from kind of left-wing Islamist Marxist radicals in the late 70s to the Khatami era reform movement, there was also a kind of progression in their views about interacting with the international economy. And so what was in the aftermath of the Iran-Iraq war very controversial, the reintroduction of foreign investment and the specifically the courting of foreign oil companies and European oil companies to come into Iran's oil and gas sector uh, is no longer quite as controversial because in fact this very powerful. Uh, ideological spectrum, which has been an important political force, even as it's been marginalized in recent years, is no longer as averse or it's no longer as sensitive an issue um, within the Iranian political dynamic. I think the other reason why there is a lessening of the um, anxiety about foreign investment is simply the impact of sanctions and what has been experienced by not just a leadership level, not just a corporate level or a state economic level, but on an individual level in terms of people's pocketbooks, Um, it has reinforced a consensus around a need for foreign investment that despite Iran's diverse economy, despite its massive wealth in terms of both human and natural resources, that Iran actually does need foreign capital and foreign technology. And it specifically, I think, helped puncture this, this notion that was particularly romantic and attractive to those on, on the more conservative or hardline elements of the Iranian political spectrum, that Iran didn't really need the West in terms of its economic development. You know, In fact, the growth is all going to be in Asia, and so you know, we don't need those European and American companies. I think the experience of, of the course of the past five years with the departure of most of, of nearly all of, of the Western European foreign investors in Iran um, has, has helped to persuade even those who are perhaps not culturally or politically sympathetic to the West that in fact to be fully reintegrated into the Iranian, into the international economy, Iran is going to have to have partners in European companies uh, and, and even conceivably in American companies despite the fact that sanctions preclude that. Um, how do I know this? Why do I believe this? In part because of the rhetoric, we can, you can tra- track an amazing kind of progression of the rhetoric in part because we've seen this transformation in the political viewpoints of particular groups and individuals, the way bills and and different proposals have moved through the parliament, but simply look even at at Hassan Rouhani's government that he put together and the sort of degree of controversy that has emerged around the nuclear issue or the sort of um, sensitivities around the person of of the foreign minister, Javad Zarif. Um, There's been almost no pushback (laughs) against uh, Bijan Zanganeh and the technocrats that he brought back into office. Um, And if you think back to the period uh, of the late 1990s when Zanganay also held the oil ministry and and was supported by many of the same people who helped design the IPC, uh, they were enormously controversial. And Zanganay was constantly targeted with uh, accusations of corruption. In 2013, his nomination went almost unopposed. There was very little uh, pushback. So there is going to be a debate around the IPC, and it will be to some extent instrumental because there's a real incentive for for many in the political spectrum in Iran to find ways to undermine Rouhani's government or even other elements of the government in order to advance their own interests. Um, But ultimately, it's a more, I think, conducive environment For uh, the sort of contract model that will actually attract foreign investors, as opposed to one like the buyback that foreign investors agreed to, sort of holding their noses and hoping against hope that it would that it would eventually become a more attractive set of terms. Do you want to say
2: something? To add something, in, I'm not going to comment on a political side of it, but uh, just going back to the history, it was in 2013 that um, the sanctions on investment in Iran was really intensified. Uh, but, and that time, Iran's oil minister was Rostam Bassami, a commander, uh, one of the IRGC commanders, um, uh, who was uh, commander of Khatam al a uh, construction uh, uh, company or complex. He, uh, for the first time, announced a production-sharing contract. Uh, So this production-sharing contract was offered to ONGC, VEDESH, and this was for development of Farzad B Field, which is a shared field between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Uh, Very sensitive for the both countries. So it was very interesting, because it just made some noises in the media. It really didn't anything happen. But Indian officials announced that uh, they're going to get the contract, because if not, then the Chinese are going to get it. But of course, no one could pursue an investment in Iran. But actually, uh, it's interesting that an IRG, uh, Oil minister that had a close ties with IRGC and when we think hardliners are against any uh, economic open up in Iran or more incentives in uh, IPC, he himself offered a production sharing contract. At that time they introduced two draft of uh, investment in gas fields and oil fields. It was about 120 something pages of draft mm-hmm. of a production sharing contract investment in Iran. Of course at this time Iran doesn't need to um, really uh, go toward production-sharing contract because it's not dealing with those sanctions, but at least it was a good test for Iranian government to see that if they increase the incentives for investments, many companies would be interested in investing in Iran. Of course, no companies could do it under that sanctions uh, environment against Iran, but I think there are uh, a lot of investment uh, incentives. And something else that I just wanted to add about the local content that you mentioned, Uh, the education uh, labor in Iran and also the infrastructure, there are many companies that uh, historically worked uh, pre-2012 sanctions with all of these European companies, and uh, with Total, with ENI. So many of these European companies, especially that are looking, going back to Iran, have worked with um, many of these companies in Iran. And they know and are uh, are, um, aware of Iranian um, local capability for uh, working uh, together. But something that is very important today, the difference uh, between today and 10 years ago, is that uh, companies that they want to choose a local partner, they have uh, to uh, go through two very time, uh, time-consuming time process. One is uh, to make sure, do the due diligence that these Local companies in Iran have absolutely no tie with IRGC or the the entities or the personnel that they name is sanctioned. So this is a very long due diligence process to make sure that there's absolutely no direct or indirect ties between these companies. Because again, during the previous oil minister in Iran, that he had a, uh, close ties with IRGC, there was lots of uh, of these. Domestic uh, uh, firms that they were acquired or uh, influenced by IRGC. The second one is the corruption issue, and the corruption issue, fortunately or unfortunately, was announced by the current Iranian oil minister. So the current Iranian oil minister Zangineh, came out and he talked about a lot, a lot of corruption cases against the previous administration. That many of these major uh, oil company, major contracting company that are going to be the partners to these uh, investment companies have been involved in this. Corruption Corruption uh, cases that the oil minister announced, and uh, some of them might be just the personal liabilities, not just the company liabilities. But this is another
1: component that is going right. to add through the uh, prolonging the process yeah. of choosing a local. As, uh, as yeah. someone who sort of covers sanctions, you know, one of the one of the remaining U.S. sanctions, the secondary sanctions is on the IRGC, and so that um, places any company that is found to have been doing business with with the IRGC. Um, at uh, risk
3: for, for um, sanctions of the U.S. I, I have a couple yeah.
1: question, more questions can I, can I just
3: add one thing, just to close the the point on production sharing contracts? I should have mentioned in my presentation, I'm so glad you brought it up. Um, in 2013, as a result of that development, actually the Ministry of Petroleum and NIOC um, now authorized to offer PSCs, but only for common fields, which are the fields shared with neighboring countries, or for certain complex deep water projects. Mm-hmm. Um, we haven't seen any of those, I guess, signed to date, but there is that authorization, so the PSC may be still um, used for that, but with the current IPC structure in the way that it is attractive to investors, they may not even need to go back to the PSC. Maybe they could negotiate,
2: negotiate those th-
1: details
3: Yeah, for, yeah,
1: for so, those fields. Um, so Suzanne, I just had one more question for you and then we can throw it open um, to the audience and we have a lot of experts here today, so looking forward to some great questions. Um, there have been a few articles this week, and I actually wrote one of them, about Siamak um, and, Namazi uh, and his detention, um, which I believe began back in October. Siamak, um, who I think is known to a lot of the people in this room, um, uh, is a former consultant uh, based in Iran, was working um, as an oil executive um, in Dubai, and he was visiting um, Iran um, to visit his family. Uh, dual national with many connections to the West and to Iran um, has been called you know, kind of a consummate bridge-builder between those two countries. Um, what do you think his detention, um, as it's been reported, says uh, kind of about Iran's readiness for uh, foreign nationals, for foreign investments? What do you think it, it says about that issue?
4: I think it absolutely underscores how risky this environment remains. I mean, I spoke a few moments ago about the fact that there had been this progression and that there's a greater openness to foreign investment and foreign companies, but um, don't let that uh, sort of cloud the view of what Iran is today, which is an intensely contested environment and one in which the issue of uh, foreign nationals, the issue of any sort of connection to Washington, however um, uh, illusory or however marginal, um, can be in terms of, of, of being utilized as, as a weapon against individuals or firms. I think that it is still uh, a deeply unstable uh, environment for foreign companies to be looking to int- reintroduce themselves because as, as Sarah and, and Goli said, many in fact had long experience there. Well, Sam Aknamazi is someone with an enormous amount of experience in Iran, um, running what was, uh, as far as I know, the only real political risk consulting firm. uh, Someone with extensive ties throughout the diplomatic and business communities, as well as, uh, as as has been said, well known to many here in Washington and a good friend to many here in Washington. Uh, He uh, is simply caught up in what is an environment in which you really can't anticipate precisely how various actors may act against uh, political rivals within the system and, and using third country nationals, dual nationals, and of course, Iranian citizens themselves who are the foremost victims of the arbitrary judiciary, judicial system that exists in the country. Um, and so I think uh, it, it's going to be a time where we're going to see more siyamak individuals detained in, in wholly unjust fashion, And uh, companies are going to have to proceed very carefully about reintroducing themselves, about developing relationships with intermediaries, interlocutors, potential partners, because of the degree of competition within the environment and because of the inability to fully insulate oneself against those risks. Um, CMAC remains someone for whom I think the US government is continuing to advocate. Uh, and uh, someone for whom I believe many uh, individuals and and organizations around the world will continue to advocate. Um, But ultimately, we we will all be relying on the good faith of the Iranian government, and so contractual models are important, business environment is important, Um, but personal safety and uh, the ability not just to extract your capital and extract your profits, but to ensure the safety of your personnel while you're over there has got to be something that uh, that everyone takes uh, very seriously.
1: All right, so with that, we have about uh, 30 minutes or so for questions, um, so if, uh, if there are any questions, just raise your hand and uh, introduce yourself, and uh, yeah, we'll go from there. Yes, sir, here in the front. Just wait for the microphone.
5: Hi, my name is Behrouz Haravi. First of all, I wanted to congratulate the panel. I think this is an excellent panel, especially with all the Iranian women on the panel, makes me very good and feel very good. And I challenge all the other players in the petroleum industry and Middle Eastern countries to put a panel like this together. I don't think any of them can come close. So congratulations to all of you and to you. (laughs) Um, So I have um, a um, couple of questions. Uh, One of them is these new contractual arrangements that are being proposed, are they only relative to oil or do they apply to gas contracts as well? That's number one. Number two, I wanted to talk about risk uh, and in this particular case, I'm not talking about the political risk as it relates to the foreign investors and foreign companies, but to Iran, because the petroleum industry is really, really, really heavily dependent on American intellectual property and American technology. And frankly, the non-American companies are in some ways just um, hollow <laughs> um, channels through which American technology is being implemented to extract oil. So with that, how, um, how is this being received and handled from an Iranian perspective, um, given all the um, controversy and rhetoric that comes out of um in you know, Washington. So uh, so those are my two questions, thank you. Do you want to take a second? I think
3: So on, on the first question, I think the um, IPC um, is intended to cover both um, oil gas oil and gas projects. Um, the challenge is that with uh, many PSCs around the world and model Exploration production contracts um, that exist—they're really drafted for oil discoveries, so there are a lot. Because the gas uh, projects are much more complex, and um, and I think that there's going to be need a lot more detail in the actual IPC in order to cover all of the risks uh, that would be, and also all of the terms that would be associated with the gas development projects. But I think the intention is to cover um, any type of project, and also to create a generic model that could be used not just for exploration projects, but also, as Sarah mentioned, for brownfield projects, you know, to revive the mature fields. And on the second question, um, if I understood it correctly, I mean, one of the objectives of the IPC is to attract, um, you know, investors and, and, and the transfer of the technology. You know, the Iranians, like any other host governments, they do need technology, especially for those mature fields. And um, a lot of that technology resides with the U.S. companies, and they're currently, um, you know, precluded for the next 8 to 10 years to do anything um, related to Iran. So um,
1: U- U.S. companies recluded for the next eight to ten years. Is that what you saying? Yeah, U.S. companies can't at all. Um, for, they, indefinitely. for indefinitely. Yeah. Yes, yes, that's and no, um, that's, that's like
3: that's in place. That's not. Company. And yeah, and because that's uh, U.S. Uh, you know or the technology would be considered U.S. originated. You know, um, restrictions basically, Yeah, asset and it. it, it I mean, really, it cannot be used, even, I mean, I'm not a sanctions lawyer, but I consult with my sanctions uh, partners and colleagues, and uh, even that foreign subsidiary exception that is currently provided under the latest updates um, uh, is not gonna be, um, I think, um, really useful in, in solving this issue, so there's really no way for the U.S. companies to use their technology. So my understanding is,
1: I mean, I'm not uh, hugely an oil expert, but you know, um, the most advanced equipment is U.S. technology. But the basic stuff that Iran, I guess, also needs that investment. Um, that that's European. That, I mean, the Europeans have that access to that as well. Um, Sarah, is there anything you want to?
2: Um, on the first question on the gas, uh, I think there is a, uh, something that we still don't understand is that uh, on the oil side, uh, the companies are going to be paid back from the production of the field and that's mm-hmm. crude oil but for gas, especially in South Pars because most of Iran's gas fields are in South Pars and they produce condensate as a non, uh, as a, a, a combination of the gas produced and previously the companies let's say ENI or Total that they were invested in South Pars they would pay back from the sale of the condensate mm-hmm. and this is something we are not sure that uh, what will be work for the gas fields. Are they going to get paid from the gas production or condensate or the same terms that the oil sale terms that you mentioned, um, uh, that NIOC will uh, give a certain production of the field in a sales contract, because always NIOC didn't want to enter another partner um, to uh, market and sell its crude oil because they didn't want to mm-hmm. have a competitor for pricing reason and marketing reasons. But what will happen on the gas field? So is Anadarko going to sign a gas sales because gas is more critical for Iran? Iran has much more domestic mm-hmm. and export plan for its natural gas, or is it going to be with condensate? Just one quick
4: point on, on the issue of American technology. I think. The one real barrier that it has presented to date and that it will continue to present to date is the access to liquefaction technology. Um, there are other patented processes around the world um, that the Iranians have explored and will likely continue to explore. But I think if you want to understand why it is that Iran has uh, been forced has, has, has developed an inward focused gas utilization uh, model rather than an export-oriented industry. It is in large part because of the limitations uh, on access to the, to the necessary patented technology. Um, the, the sanctions issue I think is going to remain the paramount political risk, not just because of American companies will be prohibited from being involved in any way except through this specific cutout for foreign subsidiaries that will have to be entirely firewalled uh, in terms of their operations. Um, but because of the continuing non-nuclear sanctions uh, applied primarily by the United States but also by other entities, um, there will be real risks for companies in the way that they go into Iran, how they partner, who they interact with, who they uh, purchase uh, domestic supplies from. Um, it, there has been I think, a, a very uh, very very much a, a sort of fear factor developed over the course of really since 2006 since since some of the financial secondary U.S. sanctions have been applied uh, to Iran, and um, that won't leave immediately, and it will uh, be a continuing hangover, and I think it will um, force companies to go even more slowly and proceed even more carefully in the way that they contemplate their, their reentry to Iran.
1: Yes, sir.
0: Hello, uh, my name is Jim Burkhardt with uh, IHS. The U.S. sanctions, uh, the U.S. still has a number of sanctions on IRGC-related companies, IRGC-related companies are deeply embedded in the Iranian economy, including (laughs) the oil and gas sector. How will uh, foreign companies avoid or uh, avoid uh, even inadvertently uh, working with such sanctioned companies? How difficult or how easy will it be to avoid that?
3: I think that's what Sarah was referring to in terms of you know the importance of due diligence process.
2: Well, yeah. the companies will go through their due diligence process, and this is not an easy process because it's not uh, it's not an easy uh, way to just say that this company is influenced by IRGC or not. They will look into the behavior and pattern of. Uh, ownership of the company. For instance, there are some companies that they were owned by IRG or like acquired some of their shares by IRGC. So now that IRGC set back on the shares of these uh, um, companies, let's say like Sadra, these companies will go through their sources to see, OK, who are the new owners? How these ownership has been transferred? So it's a very complicated and time consuming process.
4: You have a point? Yeah, yeah. It's a boon
3: for lawyers, really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there is a lot of due diligence involved, you know, in general. I mean, anytime you want to find the right local partner, I mean, in this case, they will have to make sure that they also don't partner with the sanctioned entity. And, um, and corruption, too, for to international Corruption is company. going to be an issue. And there was an article that recently came out where um, I think NIOC, or it was maybe from the Minister of Petroleum, um, making statements that you know that investors would be free to choose the local partner that they want that they're going to be knowing positions
4: so they will just have to do their own due diligence and make sure they find the right partner I, I think the risk is going to be and we've seen this transpire over the course of the past decade in particular where um, companies are sanctioned for activities that took place several years in the past and so there's going to have to be a kind of continuous due diligence process,
6: mm-hmm.
4: um, to understand precisely the origins and the ongoing interactions of, of any kind of local uh, partners or, or suppliers on the Iranian side. And, and there is so much opacity, there's been so much spin-off from the state sector into mm-hmm. private hands that are not wholly private Uh, And I think we're going to likely be in an environment where the Treasury Department is going to be looking for opportunities to demonstrate that U.S. sanctions continue to have meaning even in a a post-nuclear deal world where the rest of the world can do business with Iran. Uh, Yeah,
1: Zachary.
0: Hi, um, Zach Kyler, CSIS. Of the uh, details that remain to be ironed out about the terms of the IPC, um, how drastically might they affect the attractiveness of investment in Iran? Um, how, how fundamental are the details and um, how much could they affect uh, the, the kinds of profits that IOCs could see um, from investment in Iran? So
3: the. Contractual framework that has been proposed right now um, is set for a generic model IPC that could be used um, as I mentioned for different types of projects. So then each EPC based on uh, each IPC then will have to be negotiated for different projects, you know, and different projects have different risk profiles. Um, and, um, you know, for example, exploration, gas exploration project is very different from reviving the old, you know, mature oil fields. So, um, and I think um, the details are very important and I think it would be up to the, you know, the companies to really look at each contract carefully and make sure that all of the the right terms and incentives are there. But at least the, the generic um, IPC model, or at least what has been proposed uh, so far, um, is intended, I think, to recognize um, you know the different issues that will come up in different types of projects and tries to address those in a very generic way. Um, and not even a generic way, but um, a lot of like fiscal terms have been kind of spelled out with the cost recovery terms, as I mentioned, even the cost recovery ceiling. And the other interesting point, we were talking about um, the progressive nature of the fiscal terms under the IPC and the fact that the fees paid to IOC are going to be linked to the higher oil prices. They even uh, have included the concept of um, price cap formula in order to address the issue of potential windfall uh, profit uh, profits that IOCs. And that has been an issue in a number of countries resulted in uh, litigation and arbitration cases. So IPC, I mean, it's clearly drafted by the team who has studied a number of contracts and they have been doing this work for a while. So they really understand mm-hmm. the issues that are gonna come up and they try to, you know, to address um, those issues um, in this um, contractual, uh, conceptual framework. And
1: we, we haven't actually seen the final contract. It's the, the, the kind of unveiling has, I think, they've now delayed it five times. The most recent one was supposed to be in a couple weeks. They're working on details. <laughs> that, was, that was postponed or canceled. Um, and now, I, I, I read somewhere some, some officials saying, actually, we don't need to unveil it in, in, in the West, in, in London, because people are going to be familiar with it here in Tehran anyway. But has Parliament, I mean, does Parliament have to approve this? Does it go to the Expediency Council, the, the Guardian Council? Like, what's the final, I know the Cabinet has endorsed it, but is there like a final stamp of approval?
2: No, there is no need for the parliament to approve it, but the parliament can criticize that, and that's what happened. And the problem from that, I mentioned that in you know, different occasions, that Iran doesn't have that regulatory, energy regulatory body, that uh, actually many international oil companies and investors are very much interested in investing in countries that they have that regulatory body because, first of all, increases the transparency. Second, it prevents all these interagency rights uh, release and as I mentioned historically Iran had and, uh, a very close uh, a, a minister that has a close tie to IRGC and Iranian hardliners to announce the I, uh, uh, production sharing contract, which is in a direct uh, conflict with Iran's constitution. But now that the other minister, like current minister, announced this, we saw that Majl, uh, the, the parliament uh, raised issues that this might be against the constitution, or we had some hardliners, some protests that you mentioned um, uh, um, uh, talking about conflicting uh, uh, conflicts between IPC and the constitution. So if there was such regulatory body in Iran that from different agencies or different power centers could reach to this final decision instead of two weeks before the final release of an IPC draft, months before that would be much more helpful. But also this IPC, going back to um, that gentleman's question, is kind of like a work in progress. So. Back in March when Iran had uh, that IPC conference in Tehran, IPC draft was only 15 page. Now it reached to 70 page. So it's just like now. where
1: do you guys see it? Like is it provided to you? Like does someone from the ministry like send it out for your comments? Like how do you get it?
3: So, on, on Twitter.
2: <laughs> they, tweet, they tweet the thing. So, the, so as I mentioned, that they, they keep talking to international companies to get their views and their uh, mm-hmm. understandings on uh, what they think. And there have been uh, different conferences or uh, in Tehran Conference or London that uh, there are different experts, Iranian experts or ex-NIOCs that they're talking about that, showing the drafts. Uh, so it's but sort of informal. It's a very informal channel, but uh, going back to the details, I think it's very important before the final draft or the concept of IPC to come out that they have as much as detail that they can include it because for instance in March uh, that 15 page if you could see that there would be lots of confusions and if you just say that the details will be announced later the companies would always be under this notion that another company might get a better terms you know because if you don't know how how long the cost recovery is going to take if you don't know what is the oil sales uh, like the so um, oil sales agreement going to like to be, uh, what is going to happen if this is a gas field, what the companies are going to get. So if there's big details and there's lots of huge ambiguities in that uh, contract, the companies are always fearful, the companies are going to think, okay, is ONGC going to still get Kind of like a production sharing contract for signing a Farzad B field. So the, these these ambiguities create uh, conflicts and, and uh, yeah. raises issues among IOC's. But if you come out with a concept that includes the specific details, I mean, of course, you are going to negotiate for fee per barrel. But if you are going to negotiate about the major terms of a contract, like uh, selling oil or getting uh, shares of production of the field, these are major components. And if it's going to be different from yeah. companies to company, field to field, that creates a lot of, uh, gotcha.
4: yeah. I, w- I think the, the expediency council has said it's going to weigh in on, yeah. on the final model. but you know and i fully endorse the idea of iran needs a genuine regulatory system for the energy sector but the problem is not so much about the specific iranian energy sector it's really about the the arbitrary nature of iran's legal system if you had a clear transparent certain legal system in Iran, um, one that was not open to manipulation by different political forces and that wasn't ultimately accountable to unelected institutions, then there would be a greater degree of confidence that okay, you invest 20 billion over the course of, of five to 10 years and you're going to have some kind of transparency and certainty in this legal system. You're just not going to have that same degree of confidence. Now that's a world that energy companies know pretty well because, you know, they tend to operate in environments with a certain degree of um, uh, difficulty. But uh, I think this is fundamental to the Iranian system and it's not going to be a sort of quick fix because even with the blessing of the Expediency Council um, and with a different political environment than you might have faced when the buybacks were first being considered, um, there is still real potential to see political shifts in it, within Iran in a way that could endanger whatever terms are set out today, and and you could see an, an environment as we did between, you know, the early 1990s, the er- initial efforts to reattract uh, foreign investment the late 1990s when those in, uh, efforts started to pay off, and then of course 2005 when it became a much more restrictive environment, not simply because of sanctions, but because of the domestic political pushback against foreign investment from hardliners. Goda, you
3: to Yeah, no, I wanted to add on, um, we shouldn't forget that IPC is a model. You know, you cannot really, it will take a very long time for the model to include, all of the variables and all of the optionalities that you really need for to take into account different risk profiles associated with different types of projects it's a lot of work and and, and I think what we will see in IPC probably not much more detail than we have seen so far but it would set the kind of the groundwork and um, kind of the key elements and the and, and I think the details will be really subject to negotiation and um, individual um, um, agreements and again, some of those details would, will differ and they have to differ because the projects are different, you know, if we're talking again, exploration project versus, um, you know, brownfield project, you know, mm-hmm. so, so it, it's, it's almost impossible to just use one form of the agreement and, um, and unless you draft it, you know, in a way they say, you know, there's seven types of projects that have been identified for which model would be used. And under each provision, or at least fiscal term, you'll say, for this type, you can use option one, option two, option three. You know, there are some model contracts like JOA published by AIPN that has that, but that a lot of work went went into it. So I don't expect to see all of the details for different types of projects in the IPC, but IPC will set the key elements and and hopefully... um, there will be no kind of major surprises in the individual agreements, but it's—it's—it's it's, it's always there is this, um, you know, notion somebody got better terms. The reality is that each project is so different from another project and um, the risks involved are different so it, it's almost impossible to find two identical projects to be able to say we we you know claim the right to the same times types of terms okay. and even the timing on when you come in could differ for example the first movers might have a you know first mover advantage we have seen it in the cis you know when in the, in the beginning of uh, in early 1990s, you know, the oil companies got much better terms than the ones that came 10 years later, even for the same type of projects. You know? so, so all of those issues need to be uh, taken into account. Uh, I think we have time for a couple more questions. Uh,
6: yes, ma'am. Julia Nane, Energy Ventures, LLC. I, on the first mover advantage, I know when Total and Gazprom did the Siri, uh, field, they got better contracts on that buyback than uh, subsequent ones probably. But I had a question on, before you even get to the contract issue, um, companies will all want these big fields like Total says, there's Azadegan, there's Avas Bangistan, And so um, one of the ways that they're selected is through a master development plan. So will the companies have to um, provide master development plans for these fields? And will, um, because I know that that was a problem for NIOC to decide on awarding Ava They got confused by all the different master development plans. So I imagine that that's gonna be the first step before signing a contract. Yes. Yeah, so
3: um, again, different projects, right? So for the exploration projects, um, I think that the, the bidding process would include the submission um, of the, you know, usual things like minimum work program obligations and minimum financial commitments for the first two years. For the projects that are um, where the commercial discoveries were made but they are non producing master development plan I would suspect would be expected. We haven't really seen any details about what would be required um, for, for the awards, you know, but. What I have seen in one of the documents, I think, was really more relevant for the exploration projects because it did include um, those requirements that you would have with respect to the minimum work program and financial commitments, which may not be that relevant for the, you know, brownfield projects and uh, and such. But I expect that um, they, and again, going back to the model IPC, you know, a lot of the terms are left blank. You know, fiscal terms are usually left blank, and it's up to the oil company to insert, you know, what they propose the fee to be and and, and what would be the scope of their work. So um, I think the master development plan may be still required for, uh, for relevant projects. But I haven't seen much detail on that. All right. Any other questions? Um, If no
1: one else has any questions, we might just wrap up a few minutes early. Um, Thank you all for coming and, and for all your questions.
3: Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much.